You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This is the second of a two-part interview I am having with Becca Whitla, Marcel Silva Storenagel, and Brian Hain on decolonizing worship. In our first interview, we focused upon understanding what coloniality means, which is the ongoing effects and impact of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy, and upon what decolonizing worship means, especially for the local congregation. This involves a better understanding and sensitivity to a complex set of issues. Among those issues are such things as a reconsideration of what is appropriate for worship, what counts as good music, and how music and customs borrowed from other traditions are responsibly and fairly used and incorporated. It also involves possible changes in the worship practices of congregations. In this episode, we broaden the understanding of decolonizing worship beyond the local context. Decolonizing worship bears upon transnational, translegal, and ecumenical issues, among many other globally pertinent concerns. Those of us seeking to work against the legacy of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy need to be aware of these issues as well. I am thankful that my three guests have agreed to return and to continue guiding us on this subject. Well, welcome back. Thank you for being with me again. Uh, so let's begin, as we talked about, uh, that this, this issue... Uh, this episode is going to be uh, about the transnational uh, things that bear upon decolonizing worship and, and what those are. So let's, let's begin with that question. Uh, what do you see as those transnational issues? Well, um, boom, there's so much that we could talk about here. David, let me start by thanking you for, for hosting us once again, Brian, for connecting us and, and Becca for the, the fruitful conversation. You know, uh, I think last time we were together, I left with more than, than we could ever talk about. And some of those questions have, have been ongoing. And I, I have this, this thing that I wrote for, for the, the Hymn Society Journal on the question of copyright, which I think is, is a part of of the answer to your question, David, it's certainly not all of it. Uh, in that piece, I start by referring to a, a Brazilian composer, a friend of mine, who has a little drawer where he keeps checks that he gets from uh, North American publishers, you know, for what a twenty dollars, fifteen dollars. You, you know how it is with copyright, right? You hopefully that amounts to something at the end of the year, uh, but you don't count on it. In his case, he told me that it would cost him more in bank fees and, uh, you know, other other operational costs than to cash to, to cash the check than to just not cash it. Uh, I think that's an illustration of how different are the worlds that Christian composers, congregations publishing houses, conferences, they, they live in these very, very different universes. Or, uh, you know, one, one popular definition of a universe is the same space-time continuum that operates according to the same laws of physics. 
right? So that's a, def a very, you know, pop definitions of quantum physics here. Um, and sometimes when I talk about these issues, it seems to me that we're talking about different universes because you are talking about different laws of physics. Uh, you're talking about um, different operating principles in, in terms of what is work and what is not work, what is voluntary, uh, voluntarily given and what is taken from you, what is authorship, what does community mean, who owns a song, all of these questions have very different answers in different parts of the world. And in the process of decolonizing, uh, and I, you know, I go back to some of the, if, if you haven't heard some of our conceptual work, and I, I, I want to thank Becca for the, the heavy lifting at the beginning of, of our last episode in terms of the way that she defined, you know, post-colonial or decolonizing. Uh, as we retell some of these stories and expose some of the, the, imbalances of power and and reward that scaffold these systems we're going to be met with these these imbalances expressed in many different ways um i'm, I'm debating what to say and what not to say here because i don't want you know david's podcast to get shot down because i said something stupid no, there's no shooting down. This is this is open and free. Uh, you know, say what you want to. Well, you know, given the the, the current political environment that we're in, it, it's a it's a political, ideological, religious environment that's very polarized, and that, that's that's true not only in the United States, right? Uh, I'm from Brazil, and this the same thing is happening down there. Um, I think part of the debates have to do with what we're willing to recognize or not, and to recognize our sometimes agency, sometimes responsibility, uh, sometimes both, in, in relation to some of these imbalances. When you start examining systemic power differentials in, in, in terms of how we narrate our lives and the lives of others, then you, you're never comfortable again. And what I would like to say is that that's probably a good, a good, good thing. It's a sign of progress. If you become uncomfortable with something that was otherwise comfortable, right? And when you think of congregational song, I think of the, the decolonizing process or the process of liberation to, to use an expression that we, we've used again, is, is a process whereby beforehand you're comfortable with, you know, SATB pretty beautiful lush choral singing as the, the music of the church. And you take that as a matter of fact, uh, going through a process of re-examination and second guessing some of the, the the invented traditions that lead to that comfortableness into an awkwardness where you're like, well, okay, there are other ways of narrating the story of the music of the church in languages that I don't know and in sounds that I hadn't heard before. So you lose the comfort and, you, and I think you lose the self-confidence, but you gain a world of music. And you become a, a part of a community of awkwardness. Um, <laughs> that should be in the Bible somewhere. I mean, certainly someone can make a, a theological connection. Um, when I talk about copyright, for example, uh, that's part of exposing part of this. Uh, that's what part of this decolonial de conversation exposes. You know, for every for, for for a composer who works within a system that makes sense for North America in terms of profit and marketing and 
sustainability. There are composers and communities elsewhere that have not been recognized for their contributions, continue to not be, not be recognized for their contributions. And unless we take responsibility for that change, then, you know, the definition of a systemic configuration is that it perpetuates its own existence through what appears to be coincidence. Ryan, you kind of deal with copyright with hymn society, don't don't you? And so like how do y'all navigate this? Yeah, I've I've been in a series of conversations, some of which Marcel has been a part of, um, to just start exploring this idea from as many different angles as possible to to get people into dialogue about this, because basically no one's happy with copyright, but no one's talking about it. Partly because it's just it's just awful to talk about because it's copyright. So it's boring and it's tedious and it's confusing. Um, but I, but I think what Marcel was, was saying um, really, really cuts to the core of, of all of this, you know, because copyright is cultural. I mean, and so when you start dealing with different cultures, even within the United States, much less, you know, different countries and different parts of the world, you start to run into systemic problems with the copyright system. The The most glaring example in the United States is the difference in how the copyright system has or has not served people of different races in the U.S. White people historically have benefited from the copyright system as it has stood and, and currently stands. Black people have not. And, you know, why that is and how that is, is a very long story of lots of factors, but it's just true. And so now um, when talking about copyright, just within the US, you have to take into account these different cultures of music making within the church and how they've been affected by copyright law. And it just gets so complex so quickly, but the the glaring reality is that it's not serving people well and it is not serving the church well. And the further you expand your viewpoint culturally um, and across the world, the more that becomes obvious that there are just so many differences and the U S's system is not helping and there's a lot wrong with it, but it's be but it's become a dominant force because it controls most of the money and where the money is, the power is. And so then, you know, then you start talking about decentering, but then how does that work within a, a monetary legal system and different, it, you know, I, it, it gets crazy really fast. That's all I have to say about that. I would think that there's, you know, the international laws of each country uh, come to bear on this, don't they? Uh, you know, the laws of China and the laws of Brazil uh, are different. And does that come to bear? Yeah, but the U.S. doesn't get along with other countries very well when it, when they want to do stuff that we don't want to do. <laughs> it's, it, and it's, it's, it's sort of more complicated than that because uh, it's not just what the letter of the law is, but it's also how the law gets applied. And, um, you know, there's, there's laws within each country and then there's also international law and it's, it's all, um, 
and there and then there's cultural attitudes to co to copyright which i think are probably just as important and uh different sensibilities in different places and i i want to echo um some things that marcel was saying in terms of um I really liked his the idea of community of awkwardness <laughs> and also kind of that goes hand in hand with a community of responsibility, I think. So if we're talking about decolonizing on a sort of bigger scale, um, I actually I want to bring it back to the local because I think that that our primary relationship is still with the people whose song it is. And when we start talking about you know, transnational dynamics and copyright law, sometimes we we forget about the community where the song comes from. And and I think that's our primary, primary responsibility. And I think that's what um, I, I love that story about the, the, the checks in the drawer. I have another story that I'll share in a second along the same lines. But but we we do have a responsibility, especially those of us who live in the um, so-called global north or the Euro Anglo North Atlantic or however you want to call call this sort of um, Anglo North America and Europe, uh, you know we have more resources and more power to actually properly honor communities from whose whose songs we're singing. But figuring out how to do that, is really complicated and I don't think there's one right way to do it, but my plea would be to be for relationship there. So um, to build relationship with uh, diasporic communities that are, that are in your community and then to try to connect to the actual communities where the song comes from as a way of honoring that. So in some senses, the, the monetary pieces is, is important, but, uh, but it's also about honoring and respecting uh, the the cultural setting, the politics, and the people um, who birthed the song. So my my story about checks is that I I was involved in a CD project, and we sang a song from South Africa, and we sang a song from Cuba, and we sang a song from the Republic of Georgia. And it just so happened that I was, and they were all songs that were connected to people that I knew. Uh, so if it, it within the next couple of years, I carried my forty dollar check, <laughs> or actually I think what I did was I brought cash, um, and I happened to be going to Georgia, I happened to be going to South Africa, and I happened to be going to uh, to Cuba, and th those things are like impossible to imagine right now in the middle of the pandemic, but I took the money to each of those places. And it was just um, kind of just a bizarre and moving thing, uh, moving in the sense of it, it moved me to, to sort of carry this goodwill gesture. But to, I mean, the scale of it was ridiculous. Like I'm somebody coming, you know, I mean, I, I was working as a musician, so I wasn't exactly loaded, but I, but I was still able to travel to those places. So there's an enormous privilege that comes with being able to do that. And then I had my like $40, can't remember if it was Canadian or US, which just seemed like ridiculous in a certain sense, right? To be carrying that money to them. But, but, um, but you know, they appreciated it and, uh, and took that money back into the communities where, where the song came from. 
but we can't do that, you know, but the, 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 the challenge I think that Marcel pointed to right at the beginning is how, how do we do that? And I don't, I, like I said, I don't think there's one uh, right or easy answer, but I think that the conversation is rich. And I think if we can take it from the boring legalities of copyright and move it towards our relationships with people that we might have more buy-in. So how do we as church communities connect to those uh, communities whose songs were singing? Well, take an example for me then. You know, if, if I uh, say my typical Southern Baptist or, you know, uh, cooperative Baptist church choir, uh, predominantly uh, Anglo, uh, is wanting to sing a song. Uh, how, do, how do we connect in a way that you're talking about to honor that? Becca, do you want to go ahead and start? I know you have you have experience with that um, in, in choirs and other settings where you've done global music. How, how have you addressed this, this question of honoring? So I think about the, um, a choir that I worked with for many years was a, um, actually not a church choir, a, a big community women's choir. And we, uh, we took a lot of trouble to contact the composer um, or the, if we knew the composer or the, um, and we, we would make sure to try to get them the, the funds that we had available. Uh, the other thing that we did was if we were uh, work, working with what might be called folk music, music that was, and music whose author we didn't know, we would invite people from that community to come in and work with the choir. And so the same, the same model holds for church communities. Um, and, you know, it's risky business when we, uh, sing other people's songs. And I, I have made mistakes. So um, I might have mentioned this last time, but but I I have sung people's songs who's without asking their permission and I've I have hurt them. Uh, trusting even in a friendship or a relationship, but but for, but taking it for granted. So I think there's a taking for granted that can happen in this conversation when we're singing other people's music. And I think you just should never do that. Um, but, you know, we're, we get busy and we're tired and it's, it's going that extra mile to try to make sure that it's okay to do something that is often the piece that we don't forget. Um, and if we actually do go the extra mile, my experience has been that, that there's an incredible richness that results. So there's a deepening of relationship and that the people who come in to do a workshop or the people who you reach out to and communicate with are um, uh, moved, you know, incredibly by your, and, and we've, we've done this with famous people too, right? You, you're a little community choir somewhere and you reach out to a famous person and they're thrilled to, to, uh, to know that this community choir in Toronto or Saskatoon or, um, you know, Dallas or wherever is singing their song. So um, th those are some, what about you, Marcel? I don't know what. Well, I, would, yeah, I was going to ask about this. like if, if I was going to uh, sing your friend's song <laughs> that can't cash his checks, uh, you know, uh, kind of build on that a little bit. 
I don't know. This this whole thing is really hard for me. Maybe that's why I wrote that article. It's because I feel it's it's confusing. It's emotionally confusing to me. Uh, and I don't want to go on a rant here, but when I say emotional confusing, I mean you know as a composer who has music copyrighted in the U.S. and in Brazil, uh, I have very two completely different experiences of the the recognition and the financial benefits that can come from the system uh and so that's one level of confusion and then the other is as as a brazilian living in the united states in a position of extreme privilege uh in in so many regards you know if i want a guitar i'll go and buy a guitar that same guitar in brazil is going to cost a month's wages two months wages uh, so it's, you know, me making music here is so different than me making music there. Uh, as far as anything from the, the access to digital technology, to actual gear, to the connections, to the, you know, and so part of me feels guilty. The other part feels angry and the other part is really, really happy. <laughs> and, and all of those things happen at the same time. So sometimes when I answer this question, I feel like I'm answering it with, with, many different voices and one of them says one thing and the other and the other says the opposite and i'm just being absolutely straightforward about that you know when i think of it of myself as a as a brazilian composer of congregational song for my entire life i've assumed that people will listen to it if they like it they'll copy it they'll pirate it they'll they'll photocopy it and they'll make copies and they'll make it their own and i will never have any level of oversight supervision or financial gain and I have no resentment about that because I've always up operated under um, in a culture in Brazil. If if we want to use it, we're going to use it. And we're not going to pay for and I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just kind of calling calling it how it is. Uh, of course, you know, if you're a, a big orchestra in a major town, you're going to have to go through all the rentals and licensings that, you know. But uh, an story, a story from that article that I tell is that. When CCLI came into Brazil, they sent out letters to all these different churches saying, hey, we're here to help you figure out your licensing for the congregational songs you're singing. There was so much outrage from pastors. They were like, it, who are you and what are you doing here? An American company has come to do us the favor of helping us organizing our licensing. First of all, we don't care. Second of all, we're not going to do it. And third of all, we have a national agency who we already have agreements with. with. We're dealing with them. We're not going to deal with you. And the entitlement that comes with the idea that you can just step into a country and open an office and, and think that you're doing everyone else a favor. I mean, come on. So that's the angry part of me. The, the other part of me is the, the happy composer. I'm like, yeah, you want to use my, what, what Becca said. You know, I'm honored anytime anyone wants to use anything that I've written and I will work with you to make it happen. And sometimes that means that for one in one church we're gonna we're gonna do it all for free, and in another church they're gonna pay me a, a nice commission, and that's okay. So I think that that relationship lens that uh, Becca brought is incredibly important because relationship is the only way to be transparent about the possibilities under which you can make that collaboration fruitful fruitful for both sides. Uh, and that's true for individual composers, and that's also true for communities. In that sense, a song is a door. A song is a portal to a universe of 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 sharing, of community, that can happen 
when you don't think of a song as a simple commodity that you can pluck from a repertoire and say, you know, because I think that's the, the, the caricature of the entitled position is that if it's in a hymnal, then that means it is at or otherwise available. It is at my disposal for consumption and the consumption of my community. And for so many in so many parts of the world, that's not what a song is. A song is a doorway for community. It's a celebration of community. It's it's how we mourn together. It's how we, um, you know, it's it's kind of how you live together, right? I'm I'm, I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German theologian, martyr of the Second World War. In life together, when he says, "When I sing, it is not I that sings, but the church that sings." That feels like home to me. So that's the other side of me. Uh, and I think as far as, you know, recommendations for even recommendations for how I approach that here in my very privileged position at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Sometimes it means I'm going to call up the composer and say, hey, can we use this? Uh, and that I'm, I'm placing the power in their hands to say, yes, you can or no, I don't want you to, which has happened. So it's not just a formality. Um, second, it. It might mean that I'll contemplate using the song, but if I can't find a way to honor its its provenance or its 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 ecology, right? The, the, then I won't use it, and I really, really want to, but I won't. Uh, and in some, and I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll just be honest here. Sometimes it means that I will, that we just can't figure out where this thing comes from, um, and that means it belongs to all these people in all these parts of the world. And I'll recognize that unknowingness and I'll invite the congregation to share in it. And there's a whole, a whole bunch of Latin American songs that I use in worship that I've done research and I've talked to people and no, we just don't know, right? But that doesn't mean it doesn't belong to anyone. It just means it belongs to many of us. And those two things are different. I'm going to stop now because I, I, I think that was a lot. Well, I want to add to the uh, complexity because you uh, uh, said in one of your articles um, that Christian music traditions flow, leak, splash into each other, creating a fission and a fusion dynamic. Uh, talk about that. Becca, do you mind if I start and I'll pass it on to you? Sure. Actually, um, can I, before you do that, I, I just want to come to, to what you just said, uh, which is that when you talked about sometimes a song belongs to many of us, it just made me think about how, um, how even when a song comes from many places, we often learned it in a particular place and we can remember the particular person from whom we learned it. And like I, there's a song, I'm going to ask you about this song, which I wrote about in my book, but um, El Espíritu de Dios, si el Espíritu de Dios se mueve en mí, yo canto como David, you know, yo canto, yo canto, it's popular all over the world in multiple languages, um, and I haven't yet figured out how it, how, how, uh, where it came from, but I learned it from a man named Guillermo, who was a refugee claimant in Toronto at the community 
we had a shared, um, I think I mentioned this last time, a, a Spanish speaking congregation that shared the building with us. And he came up to me and said, this is a great song. We have to do it. So the version that I learned was from this man who subsequently got deported actually um, back to El Salvador. And um, so when I remember that and I remember him and I think about the people of El Salvador, even though the song is sung in West Africa and Fred Hammond recorded a version of it on his spirit of the Lord. Um, you know, you, uh, it's, it, it, there's, there's something about making, about connecting to the, to the, that point of learning that I think um, can lift up the experience of particular communities. So back to fusion and fission. Thanks, Becca. Yeah, you're, you know, even when I think of that very song, I remember reading about it in your work. And I was like, hey, I know that song. You know, my grandmother sang it. Um, so for all, for all in, in all respects for me, that was an absolutely Brazilian song until it wasn't, right? Until it. Right. Well, it's, somebody said to me, oh, I, I learned that song in West Africa, like, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. So. I, I don't know where it, it is a fantastic song, but I, I you know, I've seen like Korean groups uh, do choreography to Fred Hammond. I've, I've, I've heard holiness groups in the, there's a, there's a Scandinavian metal version of that song. Like there's just, and it's like, it's awesome. Um, and I, I happen to think that it came uh, from Latin America, uh, but you know, we I have no proof. Put our heads together, find that, find, find that out, <laughs> or at least, yeah. We should totally. We, it would be fun. We we would it, hours yeah, sitting should, in front that, of that YouTube watching fun. all the versions. Uh, I think this example of Espíritu de Dios is a great example of the messiness thing. Um, I mentioned earlier that kind of paradigm shift where you move from, you know, oh, of course, you know, everyone sings SATB piano organ music in church to this whole world of musics, right? To use an experience, uh, an expression, I think it's Jeff Todd Titan, the ethnomusicologist, ethnomusicologist has a book called Worlds of Music. Um, when I was, uh, my my book that came out, uh, Church Music Through the Lens of Performance, I was working with congregations in Brazil and Waco, Texas, doing ethnography. And there's a, there's a lot of literature on the concept of hybridity as a way to explain um, how musical repertoires or influences kind of intermingle, right? Uh, that's not the only way. Michael Hahn in, in, in a book called New Songs of Celebration Render, he uses the, the metaphor of streams. So you have, you know, this, this big river of, of Christian church music that is divided into these streams that sometimes they'll, they'll join together and then they, depending on the terrain, they'll go out in a different direction. Uh, and then the, the water looks different and tastes different because it assumes the character of the soil um, of the country through which it's, it's flowing. That's another way of talking about it. The term I use, David, to, to, to respond to your question is messiness. And I, and I found uh, this term in the work of a Brazilian, a Lutheran ethnomusicologist called Werner Ewald. He, I think his, he got his PhD from the University of Chicago or there was something I don't remember. Anyway, Vernet Evolt, he's a friend of mine. And we edited the, the, the latest edition of the Lutheran hymnal in Brazil together. And I was reading his, his doctoral dissertation because apparently that's something people do. And 
he uses the term messiness, messiness to describe the music of German immigrants in South Brazil. And I took it and said, this, is, this, is, this describes what church music actually is. Because when we say church music, all we're doing when we say church music is we're, 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 like we're putting a frame and we take that frame and we put it around a repertoire and say, this is church music. What we mean is that this is my this is my experience of tradition uh, of church music. This is my imagination into a tradition of church music. It's not all church music. It's not the only church music, and it certainly is not pure church music. So my use of the term messiness, in a way, is to counter the magnetic influence of this pernicious idea of purity as a performance that can be attained. I'm going to say that again in a, in a, in a less convoluted way, right? There's this, this seditious, attractive idea that this music that we sing is really ours and it's pure because, you know, this is the good old Baptist or the good old Lutheran or the good old whatever it is. And hey, I'm just as guilty as anyone else, right? I, I'm, I'm Lutheran. I, I Give me a good corral. <laughs> But I'm, I'm reminded of, a, of an article that Paul Westermeyer published in, again, in the hymn, right? It's called, What is a Hymn Heritage? In which he, he asks that question. It's like, you know, we did a service and someone told me it wasn't Lutheran enough. The music wasn't Lutheran enough. And I was left wondering, what does that even mean? Are you talking second half of the 16th century? Are you talking 17th century before or after the 30 years war? Uh, war? Are you talking uh, American Lutheran? And then what American Lutheran are you talking? You know, there are so many subdivisions. So I use messiness to recognize the fact that when we're talking about music and the way that people music with a CK as an activity, right, as a verb, Music leaves traces on our fingers, on our faces, all over the... It's almost like kids in a room with a lot of paint. You can't take it off the wall after the event, right? You can't undo the, the, the way that the colors have mingled. You can't take green and separate it back into yellow and blue. That new green is fascinating. It's wonderful. It's also not pure, and that's a good thing. So uh, that's what I mean when I, when I use those expressions. It's an acknowledgement of how I think influences actually ebb and flow and splatter and mix together. And, and embracing that as, as what we do, instead of trying to uh, embark on this museal, museological project of cataloging and separating and pinning down and separating with glass panes, and I'm like, no. That's just not, that doesn't represent the dynamics of the living thing. Well, Brian, in the, in the conversation that we had, uh, you and I and Mike, uh, when we talked about uh, the fuzziness of the definition of him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this seems to kind of bear on this. So kind of talk about that a little bit. It does. Well, I just wanted to, to respond to Marcel's uh, comments and, and say what it what it reminded me of is a conversation that happens with people who are in congregations that are you know um white 
culture or even culturally white. Um, and when, when they get asked to do music that is different, whatever that music is, they can get really upset. And what the, what they're being asked to do is to decenter themselves and to make room for something else. And so there's like a, there's a sense of loss there. But I think what Marcel was pointing towards is that uh, I think Augustine said like the, the original sin was pride that we, we have to ap approach church music and we have to help our congregants understand that while yes, we have certain traditions and experiences that it, it's just this tiny little piece of everything that's going on. And we have to help folks get rid of that pride that kind of naturally happens as humans to say this experience that I had is the experience rather than an experience. And that's really, that can be really hard. Um, it, you know, like Marcel said, like even for people that talk about this and study it and try to lead other people towards this idea, we do it. You know, it's like, well, this is my experience. So this must be your experience too. And then it's like, oh crap, no, I just did the thing that I tell people not to do. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I, but I, I do think it, it, there's a certain humility that comes with this and, and that takes a lot of practice and, and always trying to catch yourself and catch your own communities, uh, and, and say, wait a minute, you know, let's make room, let's make room here. Um, and, and, and so when we talk about the definition of the hymn or, or the word hymn, or congregational song or congregational music. It's this constant dialogue that has to be at play of what are we talking about? Because when, when one person says, let's sing a hymn, I, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, they're talking about something different than when I say, let's sing a hymn. Or when the third person says, let's sing a hymn, because we're using all sorts of colloquialisms, definitions, uh, we all bring different experiences. And um, so it's a, you know, the definition of the hymn. I just got asked this today. I was this guy doing a documentary on hymn stories. And he asked me this question. I gave him like a 10 minute long answer. And I think he just wanted me to define the word hymn. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a conversation. And as soon as you feel like you have the definition of the word hymn. Nah. Well, is it still a useful category? I don't really like that word very much anymore. I, I don't use it very often unless I'm actually doing, unless I'm talking about like strophic poetic hymn texts. I like congregational song as a, a better catch all that gets people thinking more deeply about what we're actually doing. I sometimes even like um, congregational singing because then it's, then it's the doing right. Um, David, can I, come back to this conversation and bring a little bit of uh, um, uh, theoretical stuff and a little theological stuff. I'm, to I'm a theologian. So right? it's Thinking okay. about decolonizing. in my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, I mean, I, I just, I think I really appreciate what both Marcel and Brian have just been saying. And I want to come back to this question of purity 
which I think is connected to this idea that we have to figure it out and also that we have to know what a hymn is and that it's one thing. And I think all of that is part of what needs to be decolonized. That is an inheritance from Europe. This, I mean, yes, you know, humans tend to be proud of their culture and what they do. And I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. It becomes not such a good thing when, in fact, it becomes a bad thing when that pride in your own cultural heritage uh, is used to oppress other people. And and that's at the heart of what um, what's going on in, in a colonizing move. So decolonizing means kind of decolonizing this idea of purity, decolonizing the idea that there's one way of doing worship, decolonizing the idea that a hymn is, you know, SATB, uh, an SATB German chorale or, 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 or an English, um, Victorian English hymn or whatever. Like even within Europe, we had different ideas of what a hymn is, right? There was diversity there. Um, so, and that idea of purity is connected to, um, as Marcel was saying, uh, notions that, uh, that mess that up, that, that bring in the messy. I love messiness too. And I, I loved last week or last time that we were talking about it theologically, because I think it's a, it's a great concept for thinking of, um, like messy theology. Right. Um, but the, this, um, I'm not the biggest fan of the word hybridity, and we probably don't have time to get into why, but it, it's one of the terms that defines bringing together uh, different things into, into something mixed. But I want to throw out another term or another group of terms which have to do with how people describe themselves. So in Spanish, the, so it would be intermixture in English, or um, and sometimes hybridity is used in English as well, but in Spanish, Spanish it's mestizaje, I think in, in I I don't speak Portuguese, but is that correct? Something like that for mestizaje. And then in Canada, we have the, the Métis nation, which is a mixture of Métis or mestizaje or creolité. All of these words are words that combine, that, that um, have embedded in them both a celebration of human intermixture and also a recognition of our shared violent colonial history. And that, that, that's what's partly what's going on when, when music comes together as well. The, the power dynamics are there and it's not always a straightforward, um, happy uh, connecting. But all of that um, drawing together is, um, brings together the, the different um, emotions that Marcel was talking about that are complex, right? Like, so it's not, it's not an easy thing to engage richly, to open yourself to another, to another person, to another culture, to another way of singing. And, and that's what I think we're called to do theologically in the gospel. That's what loving your neighbor is about. And that's how it, that's what it means in terms of singing. Loving your neighbor means uh, honoring other people's song and opening yourself up to their song. Um, and so I'm familiar with that sense of loss that people have, particularly in, in, in white congregations, you know, well, how come we're not singing our song, you know? And um, I just want to say that there's a loss 
for people who are uh, minoritized that doesn't even get to be expressed, right? Those, some cultures are shut out and they aren't even at the table to say, hey, we feel lost too, right? So there's a way in which we can flip that and try to help our congregate. Well, what about, you know, these other cultural groups that, that aren't even present among us that have been excluded or that have been, or who are suffering and their, their cultural expression, how can we affirm that? Well, I just, the, the, there's a Bible story. Let's go to the Bible folks. Now that, that keeps popping into my mind. Um, one of my favorite choral pieces of all time is tribute to Caesar by Arvo Pert. I love Pert. Um, and uh, so, you know, this, this, the story is where they, they come to Jesus and, and they're like, Hey, you know, should we pay taxes or not? Because if Jesus said, if you do pay taxes, then, you know, you're, you're in with the Romans, but if you don't pay taxes, then you're not, you know, it's like a trick question or whatever. And he's like, well, whose picture's on the coin? You're like, well, Caesar's. And you're like, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. So like, part of me feels like that, that's part of the answer here is, yeah, pay into the copyright system. It's it's not doing a great job, but it is doing some things and it is capitalism and it is the law, like if you're in the US, you know. So yeah, pay into the copyright system, do your due diligence to follow the law. But you can't stop there because Jesus calls us into a, into relationship building. Jesus calls us into healing and um, into acts of humility. And so our job as Christians, yeah, give unto Caesar, you know, capitalism is a beast and we're in the midst of it. But then we have to take the next step, like Becca was just saying, to build, build relationships, um, you know, do the things that we're not necessarily required to do by law that we're, that we are being called into as Christians. Can I, oh, sorry. I was just going to jump in with a, a story that you're reminding that this conversation is reminding me of a, a number of years ago, I worked, uh, with a Canadian organization that brought a choir from South Africa to tour Eastern Canada. And, uh, the, you know, they did concerts a, a, across the Eastern side of the country. And, um, at some point the Canadian copyright organization, uh, got, found out about the concerts and contacted us uh, to pay royalties. And all of the repertoire was uh, either by people who were in the choir or by anonymous South Africans who would not have claimed copyright on their music because they would have been jailed and perhaps killed for it because it was all music that was from the struggle against apartheid. So, so we were we were sort of on the hook, but there was, but we were very well aware that, that, the, that this tour was actually benefiting the people, the community whose songs were being sung. They were South Africans and they were uh, benefiting from this tour and that there was no way to get the, the, the royalties back to the composers in South Africa. So it was this huge conundrum. Um, eventually we managed to convince SOCAN is the Canadian copyright organization that, that deals with uh, performance rights that, 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 that we were not the devil they were looking for basically, because we, we just were, 
we had done our due diligence and, and there, there wasn't a flow, like there wasn't a way to make the money flow from Canada to South Africa that would actually benefit any of the composer. Well, Michael Hahn's book, um, you know, one bread, one body, um, you know, brings up the issue in Paul and Corinthians of talking about you know, the church and God's desire for the unity of that church. And that, that history, that legacy has been manifest in this, this sense of, of making people by coercion fit into a single form, you know, that they came up with the mass and everybody had to do the mass and it had to all be in Latin, uh, you know, and that's, that's carried forward. Um, but how do we, how do we talk about that sense of unity, that sense of one bodiness, uh, while also honoring, carrying forward the important task of decolonizing, separating it from that legacy of a coercion uh, but affirming uh, what may be a desire of God. Yeah, uh, there's a huge, huge difference between co coercion and unity. And the, the, the very idea that the, the actualization or the performance of unity is the performance of conformity or of similarity is a, a, a crass exegetical problem, right? So that idea that, you know, you read Revelation, you read the hymns in Revelation, I'm using the word hymns here, I shouldn't. Um, but, you, and then how does your imagination fire when you, when you, you know, when John in Revelation says, you know, I saw all these people from all these different, you know, singing, the fact that, at least partly our imagination of people seeing together is of them singing in some, some sort of organized monolingual fashion is problematic. You know, when, when that prompt from revelation, I think should lead us to a portrait of unity that is incredibly diverse because it represents the spectrum of humanity's experience with God across space and time. So we're, we're talking about two very different, two very different things here. Uh, the celebration of unity should not pass through the enforcement of conformity. And that's why I say community of awkwardness, because we're all of us are kind of moving away from, from, you know, should be moving towards this place where we're like, we either have an accent or really, really don't know what we're singing or what we're saying, or we're unfamiliar with this performance practice. When it terms of, when, when it comes to congregational music, and I use that term to encompass not only what we sing vocally, but also the music that we make that um, may not be vocal in nature, right? But is performed in the church. Then you, you can break it down into certain components, right? One is, we've talked about this, the, 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 the aspect of attribution. So are you, and I would encourage these as kind of questions for congregations to ask, um, and for communities to ask. Sometimes communities are choirs, sometimes communities are churches, sometimes they're, you know, they're, actual community centers so attribution who does a song belong to or where it or has it passed through and how do you tell those stories how do you tell the story of guillermo when you you sing uh, espiritu de dios how do you remember and honor 
that the, the passage of that song or the passage of that person. Um, then the other is the issue of compensation. And if that's something you're you're dealing with, then how? Sometimes it's not possible, but you might make it, you might come up with a surrogate. You know, so we can't pay this community or this person, we can't honor, financially honor them, but we could do this other thing, you know, that would uh, help us bear the responsibility uh, uh, over the song that we would uh, and step into community with that with that history. Then the the third is the issue of what I like like to call performance practice in a more particular sense here, where instead of and I'm going to use the term here a little bit aggressively, but uh, you know, whitewashing the song, right? You take this very dynamic, lively thing and you make it squeeze into you know a four part Western theory. You know, we either div divide quarter notes into eighth notes or you, you, we can do a triplet, but that's like we're not budging, you know, past the triplet. Well, what do you do with your quintuplet, you know, Indian Raga Takadimi Ta style? So trying to get congregations and and practitioners to engage with musical practices that, again, expand their palate, I think, is, is a huge opportunity that, that we should not miss. And then avoid the temptation of exoticizing. And there's a lot of scholarship in musicology about, you know, 19th century opera. And you're talking about, you know, these, these the, the Persian princess or whatever. And it's like this, this faraway culture that you make into this magical other, which is a way of whitewashing all the problematic uh, commercial and political uh, relationships between, between these countries during, say, you know, England's imperialist period or whatever. So don't exoticize the other. Don't patronize the culture from, from where you're drawing. Oh, this is from our, you know, this is from a little village in whatever it is, and you kind of paint this picture. Uh, that's not entering into relationship with. That's um, hanging something up on the wall and moving on. Uh, those are different. Those are different things. So, uh, David, one one recommendation that I do make for uh, song leaders who might be interested in in stepping into this process is that it is probably not worth it doing doing it once, right? We talked about this last time about rehearsing that and making it part of your your diet at least you know semi regularly so that it kind of populates the communal imagination of your congregation and from there it can find its way into their hearts. That leads to all sorts of unintended and beautiful consequences in my experience. Oh. <laughs> I, I was just going to make the quick point. Do you want to go ahead, Brian? The the what Marcel referred to as whitewashing of performance practice has happened to what most people would refer to as traditional hymns, like Calvin, like you know Reformation era hymns that are based on dance tunes are played in the most stodgy way, and they're and they just aren't supposed to be. Like, you know, something from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries shouldn't sound the same every time we play them. The registrations on the organ shouldn't all be the same. They shouldn't all be on the organ as much as I like the organ. Um, so even within European repertoire, there has been this kind of forced performance practice thing that, that you can just, you could start there with playing things more interestingly and... <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good start. In a way, I think um, 
that 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 we all, we need to go back and decolonize European traditions as well, actually, because I think that there was a sort of a coming together of uh, of imperial appetites, which tended to homogenize everything in the 19th century and early 20th century. And that reached back into Europe as well and, and, and took away the dance tunes, insisted on everything being sung in four-part harmony in a certain kind of uh, harmonic language. And, and you know, so, so there's a way in which we could bring back chant and bring back those dance rhythms and use uh, other instruments to uh, accompany earlier hymns that, that that's also part of decolonizing, right? It's a kind of interesting uh, thing to think about. Well, we have used our time uh, and it has been uh, amazing. Uh, the insights you all have provided uh, are vital, they're important. I uh, thank you for the work that you're doing, uh, for helping us uh, move forward uh, in important ways. Uh, so I'm grateful for your voices. Uh, I'm grateful for your music. Uh, I'm grateful for what you're doing and who you are. Uh, so thank you for being with me. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Thanks for bringing us together for this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.